Well, as our title suggests uh, this morning, is that right? Wow, I got a lot of time. It's 11 o'clock. Yeah. We're going to be here a while. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's, you always want a, a pastor with notes because you know there's an end. Uh, if you see a guy come up and he has no notes, be afraid. Be very afraid. Uh, as the title of this morning's message suggests, I'd, look, I'd like to look at this morning's passage through the lens of response. Uh, the title is Responding to the True Light. Uh, that is, how those mentioned in this passage respond to the true light of the Word. In our message last week, we discovered that Jesus is the light. He's the light that shines in the darkness. And John is going to pursue that imagery of light further in verses 6 through 13. Uh, and it's in those verses that we're going to see this, and this is our kind of a thesis statement for the morning. We're going to see three responses to the true light which John uses to illuminate God's p- plan of redemption. Again, three responses to the true light which John uses to illuminate God's plan of redemption. There's a host of responses that are given in the Bible that are recorded in the Bible. The, the book of Proverbs records a, hast- uh, a hasty response. Proverbs 18, 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. That would be a hasty response. The chief priests have an insincere response to the baptism of John in Matthew 21, 25, when they fail to answer Jesus about whether or not John's baptism was from heaven or from man. Rehoboam, maybe you remember his unwise response to counsel. He places a heavy yoke on God's people in 1 Kings chapter 12. Jesus, of course, gives a very wise response to the Pharisees when he is questioned about giving tribute to Caesar. You remember that. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You might remember that God's people responded with an amen in Ezra, or when Ezra read from the scriptures in Nehemiah 8, they stood and they gave a hearty amen to the word. We also know that the heavenly beings respond to the presence of God with, as Isaiah says, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. It's in the spirit of such responses that we're, we're going to add three additional responses to that list. We'll see an inspired response from John the Baptist, a very natural response from the world, and finally, a privileged response from the believer. And that will be our outline as we move forward through this passage. If I was to put the goal of this passage into a question, which I like to do, remember all learning begins with a question, we might ask it this way, what does each response to the true light teach me about God's plan of redemption? That's the question I'd like to answer this morning. What does each response to the true light teach me about God's plan of redemption? And so with that, let's go ahead and read the scripture. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to read the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. Again, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to wear, bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right 
to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you. So our first response is this. It's John's inspired response, and we see it in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, of course, we're making a transition from the heavenly to the earthly. We go from the divine logos, which we looked at last week, or the word that was in the beginning and was himself God, to a man who was sent from God. In verses 1 through 5, John addressed him who was before the world. And in verses 6 through 8, he speaks of him who came into the world. Verse 6, we read, there was a man sent from God, or there came a man sent from God, some translations say. While Jesus was in the beginning, this man came into existence and is described as a man. Yet this man was sent or commissioned by God. His mission was not of worldly origins, but it was of otherworldly origins. This man, whose name was John, is none other than the man the other gospel writers call John the Baptist, although John doesn't use the title here. In fact, he introduces John in a very peculiar way. We're not given any history of John. He doesn't speak of the, any of the baptizing that John does, at least not in this introduction here. And I've said he doesn't even call him John the Baptist, just simply John. And, and John the Apostle will have more to say about John the Baptist later in the chapter, but here at the outset, it seems John wants to, to, to stress the subordinate place that John the Baptist has. He is subordinate. He is lesser than someone else. You might know that there was a bit of a popularity contest in the early, in the early church between John and Jesus. Knowing what we know, this seems a little odd. Jesus was the Son of God. But in their day, it wasn't odd to them. Uh, there were some who followed the baptism in, of John, and there are others who followed the baptism of Jesus. In Acts 18.25, we learn of a man named Apollos. Maybe you remember him. Scripture says this man was eloquent. He was a learned man. He was competent. He was well-versed in the Scriptures. Yet, it says, he knew only the baptism of John. Later in Acts 19.3, Paul encounters a group of disciples who give the appearance of believing that John's baptism takes precedence. Luke writes in 3.15, uh, Luke 3.15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. They didn't know. Apparently, many could not decipher between the one who gave witness to the light and the one, the one who was, in fact, the light. It seems to me that John makes an extra effort throughout the book to confirm that John is subordinate to Jesus. In verse 8, he says, as we see here, he was not the light, but rather he came to bear witness about the light. In verse 20 of the opening chapter, we have these words from G John the Baptist. Apparently, they're not enough, but he confesses, I am not the Christ. In chapter 3, verse 30, you remember John the Baptist's words, he must increase, but I must decrease. In chapter 4, verse 1, it's recorded that the disciples of Jesus were baptizing more disciples than John. And in chapter 10, verse 41, John writes, and many came to him, that is Jesus, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. John wants us to see the subordinate place that the Baptist place uh, holds, you might say. Yet it was still the case that men are tempted to see John the Baptist as the star. You and I 
know that such temptation exists today. Not that we'd become disciples of John the Baptist. Of course not. Uh, Rather, that we might align ourselves with a particular leader, uh, a particular teacher or preacher, ministry, denomination, idea, or maybe even just a perspective, that when push comes to shove, we're actually more their disciples than disciples of Jesus. This ought not to be. Ministers and ministries should never be measured by membership. Pastors and teachers should never be praised principally for their style or delivery. You and I should never fall so in love with a method, a medium, or a ministry that we become, you might say, disciples of John the Baptist. Listen to the way Paul spoke of his ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not, came, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Here's the heart and soul of our pulpit and our ministry, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. John was indeed sent from God, that is John the Baptist. He had an inspired response, yet he was not the true light. Ministers, pastors, elders are indeed called by God. Acts 20.28 says they are appointed by the Holy Spirit. Yet, they are men. John's introduction of John the Baptist reminds us that there's a danger in following the messenger and an even greater danger in missing the true intent and purpose of ministry, namely, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We've already noted that John's role as baptizer is incidental to John. What is significant, however, is that he did come as a witness. He came as a witness. Or more direct, he came for witness. At this point, John's role for witness is emphasized. Recall that John's purpose in writing the gospel is that we would believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing have life in His name. Two weeks ago, I argued that, argued that John's primary way of proving this was through what? Probably don't remember. Maybe you do. Signs, miracles. That was the primary way that he proved that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Well, John is actually going to employ, employ a lot of different tools to make that point. And one of those tools he uses is this idea of a witness, of a witness. And so there's many examples here. John 5, 37, the Father is a witness. Jesus said, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Jesus himself is a witness in 8.18. He says, I am the one who bears witness about myself. The Holy Spirit bears witness, 15.26. But when the Helper comes, Jesus says, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The works of Jesus are a witness, which is related to the idea of signs. That's in 536. Jesus says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, that is the Baptist. For the work that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. There's also the witness of Scripture. Scripture bears witness. 
Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think of them, because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. John the Baptist bears witness, which we see in this passage today. Others have, uh, others bear witness. You remember the Samaritan woman. This man told me everything I did. You remember the man who was born blind and was healed. He bore witness. The disciples bear witness, or in Jesus' day, you might say, were to bear witness. In John 15, 27, Jesus said to them, and you also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning, which is actually what John's doing in writing this. He's bearing witness. All of these, all of these things bear witness. They give testimony that Jesus is who he says he is. I hope you can feel the weight of John's argumentation. Just in the witness that he's offering. Those aren't even the signs. Those aren't even the I am statements. There's so much here that demonstrates that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's on every page. And I hope that your heart can rejoice and have confidence that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of God. Now, keeping with this thought of being a witness, think with me for a moment about what it means to be a witness. What is critical to being a witness? What does a witness do? Gives a testimony. He gives a testimony. That's what a witness does. They're giving testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what these witnesses are doing here. Something that's important for us to realize or stress is that being a witness, giving a testimony, is a serious matter. It is a serious matter. It's a weighty matter. It's not to be taken lightly. In fact, there's a sense of legality that comes with bearing witness. Think of some of the synonyms for the word uh, testimony or witness. Statement, declaration, evidence, affidavit. These are all kind of legal terms. They have a legal sense about them. A sworn statement. What a, what a witness does is he substantiates the truth of a matter. That's what a witness does. To be a witness is to give testimony. It's to establish the truth. Even further, to give witness is to act as a guarantor. It's to make a guarantee. It's to commit to something. This is what lies behind that preliminary oath in the courtroom. Think about what, what, what is that about when you take an oath in a courtroom? Well, by taking the oath, we are binding ourselves to what we say. Sounds a little odd, but in doing it, we're giving up the right to withdraw ourselves from that claim. We're saying, this is true, and I'm, I'm binding myself to that, to that truth, establishing it, committing to it, substantiating it. I can't remove myself from this truth any longer because I've made an oath. That's what giving a testimony is. Not to be taken lightly. Therefore, what John the Apostle is doing throughout this gospel in giving these witnesses is staking everything on himself, on the truth of what he says. He's binding himself to this purpose, that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I don't believe it's too much to say this. This is all kind of sitting behind what John the Baptist is doing. It's behind his inspired response to the true light. He came to testify. 
This is really the way to summarize John's entire ministry is a testimony to, to give light, to, to testify to the light. You remember, he's a voice crying in the wilderness. Jesus says he was a burning and shining light. But, of course, that's only true in the sense of a reflection. Augustine writes that there are trees and mountains upon which the sun shines, which reflect the light and show by their own brightness and beauty what a great and wonderful light, vaster and mightier than they, is shining above them. When we look at creation, we look at the natural light that exists on the mountains and hills, as Augustine says, they just give glory to a greater light that shines on them. This might be said of John. For he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Verses 9 through 11, we move from John's response to the world's response, from John's to the world's response. And so our second major point is this, the world's natural response, verses 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verses 10 and 11, we discover that although Jesus was in the world and he came to his own people, the world and his own people failed to receive him. That is, they didn't believe in him. They were unable, unable to distinguish the true light. John says that Jesus was the true life, the true light. He is the true life as well, but here he's the true light. Jesus is true as opposed to false. He is real as opposed to unreal. Jesus is the true light that came to enlighten and illuminate men. One of the reasons this light is true or real or genuine is because it's a universal light. He gives light to everyone. Of course, John is not saying that all will acknowledge that light. Uh, we see precisely the opposite in verses 10 through 11. The world and his own people didn't acknowledge that light. John's point is that there is only one light that can illuminate men. No one in this world can possibly be illuminated by any other light other than Christ. Verses 10 and 11 speak of the appearances of Jesus to the world and to his people and their respective responses. We read that he was in the world. To say that Jesus was in the world is somewhat of an understatement. Uh, yes, he was in the world. He was also the creator of the world. John also affirms this, and the world was made through him. That's what it says in verse 10. Here we have the primary reason why the world should not have rejected him. The world should have recognized the Logos when he appeared in their midst. While animals might not have recognized their creator, it seems that intelligent men created in his image should have recognized, worshipped, and adored him. But they didn't. We're reminded of Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Maybe remember this passage. It seems relevant. Paul writes, for what can be known about God is plain to them. I always like to read this plain to us. It's not them, it's me. It was plain to me. It was plain to you. Because God has shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. It was clear to us. It was right in front of us. So, Paul says, we're without excuse. We have no excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, which is us. We didn't honor him. We didn't give thanks to him, even though he was right there and plain to us. 
But we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. This is the rejection of the world that John is speaking of, although he doesn't give us so much detail. Rather, he just presents the world's response as an unreasonable act with no reasonable explanation given. In this way, the world's failure to know the light is, is the very essence of unreason. He created the world, yet they rejected him. How could that be? It's the clay looking at the potter square in the face and asking, Who are you? With a broken heart, don't miss this, with a broken heart, it's right to acknowledge that the world missed its greatest opportunity. We don't point our finger at the world and talk about it from an academic perspective. It should break our hearts that in the, the highest moment in history, when everything came to bear, the demons you know, came from everywhere because Messiah was on the earth, they missed it. We've missed it. Man's ordinary, natural, sin-filled response to the true light is rejection. We fail to see it. John says the world did not know him. He says even more in verse 11, not only was Jesus in the world, but he came to his own. Literally, he came home. He came to his homeland. Frontier had their home, uh, homecoming. You know? They came home. That's what Jesus did. He came to his home people. If you, if you are shook by the world's missed opportunity, we are crushed with an even greater tragedy in this verse. Jesus' home people, his own people, failed to receive him. It was Israel, of course, that failed to receive him. Israel alone is the homeland or home people of Jesus. We know that. Jesus means more here than, than that Jesus was born in Palestine. Of course, that's true, but, but he's after something else here. Namely, that Israel is God's treasured possession. Deuteronomy 7, 6 tells us that God chose Israel out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. For more than a thousand years, this chosen nation prepared for Messiah's coming. They were kept in expectation of this event. Every element of their religious and cultural lives looked forward to this moment, the coming of Messiah. To say that Jesus came to his own people is to speak of prophecies fulfilled. Consider the following. He was born of a woman, Genesis 3.15. He was from the line of Abraham, Genesis 12. He was of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. He was also from the house of David, 2 Samuel 7. He had a forerunner, Isaiah 40, Malachi 3.1. He was born of a virgin, virgin Isaiah 7.14. He was born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. He was worshipped by the wise and presented with gifts, Psalm 72, Isaiah 60. He was in Egypt for a season, Hosea 11. His birthplace suffered a massacre of infants, Jeremiah 31. If you'll forgive me, I'm not going to read the passages. He was a Nazarene. He was called Emmanuel. He was zealous for his father. He was filled with God's spirit. He healed many people. His miracles were not believed, Isaiah 53. He dealt gently with the Gentiles, Isaiah 9. He spoke in parables. He was praised by little children, Psalm 8. He made a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Zechariah 9. He was betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He was forsaken by his disciples. He was scourged and sat upon, uh, spat upon. He was a man of sorrows, Isaiah 53. 
He suffered the piercings of his hands and his feet, Psalm 22. He was crucified between two thieves, Isaiah 53. He was thirsty, Psalm 22. He was given vinegar to drink, Psalm 69. His garments were parted and gambled for. He was surrounded and ridiculed by his enemies. He, was, he commended his spirit to the Father, Psalm 31. His bones were not broken. He was stared at in death. He was buried with the rich. His price money was used to buy a potter's field, Jeremiah 18, Zechariah 11. He was raised from the dead, Psalm 16. He ascended to the heavens, Psalm 24. And yet, to John's point, he was rejected by his own, Psalm 69. Do we need more? In every way, it would seem that for such a one to finally come, for all that to be fulfilled, that he would be received with open arms. Yet, it says, his own people did not receive him. Isaiah 1 is not the same context, but it sure seems fitting. Hear, O heavens, and give earth ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. It seems too slight, too slight to say they should have known better. There's a third response in this passage. It's found in verse, verses 12 and 13, and I've captured it this way. It's his children's privileged response. His children's privileged response. John, of course, doesn't want, us, doesn't want to leave us thinking that nobody responded to the word. In fact, some did receive Christ. Here in the ESV translation, it says, to all who did receive him. In other translations, we read, as many as received him. John has in mind both Jew and Gentile. As it turns out, although the world and Israel failed to accept him, there are individual Jews and individual Gentiles that have accepted him. The as many as would include those in John's day, and as well, it includes us. We're in that verse. And here we're reminded of a couple things. First off, we're reminded that accepting Christ is not a corporate matter. It's an individual matter. Our relationship with Christ is not mediated by another or by others. We're not saved because we belong to a church. We just did a membership class Sunday or Saturday, yesterday. That membership class doesn't save you. You're not saved because you're a member of a church. You're not saved because you grew up in a Christian family. You're not saved because you went to a Christian school. Our status and relationship with Christ is solely determined by what we as individuals believe about Christ. For you as an individual, it matters not what this church believes. Salvifically, before the Lord, it doesn't matter to you. What do you believe about Christ? That's what matters. Do you believe he is the true light that came into the world? I hope you do. 
the phrase to all or as many as, this reminds us that the door is open for all. It's open to anyone. It's very possible that there's some here who have not received Christ, maybe for fear of rejection, if I can push on that one a little bit. That what I call, I call this kind of a reverse pride, that a, that a reverse pride has infiltrated your mind. You believe you're not good enough, not clean enough, maybe that you're not from the right family, that you've done something that would exclude you from becoming a child of God. Maybe you believe that lie. Well, if you're tempted to believe that, listen to these words from Paul. For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Forgive me. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Didn't expect that. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in, because of him you are in Christ Jesus. And because to us, and became to us wisdom from God, I am sorry, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I hope you can say amen. Here's a crazy notion. <clears throat> you're right. <laughs> well, you're partially right. You're not good enough. You're not clean enough. You're not from the right family. And you have done something that should exclude you from being a child of God. But you see, God chose what is low and despised in the world. He chose the weak in this world to shame the strong. Coming to Jesus, we acknowledge that we don't measure up. None of us do. What makes the gospel the good news is that Jesus Christ accepts those who don't measure up. In fact, he only accepts those who don't measure up. And I need a tissue. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to sniff. <clears throat> I believe it was Tim Keller who said, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Maybe you've heard that before. I don't know if when you come to church, you come to see the, the, uh, the glass cases. Excuse me. Thank you, Jeanette. I really appreciate that. And don't worry. This is being recorded forever. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you come to the church, you know, you come in and you see those glass cases with all the trophies lined up. Is that what you do? You just come here and you look at all those trophies and you look, look what we've done. Look what we've done. Look at that. Look at this. Is that what church is about? Just to come and look at the glass trophies? Friends, I don't think so. I'm not sure if you think that church is about admiring the glass trophies or it's about triage. I like Tim Keller's quote. You know, sometimes we do look at the trophies and I think there's a time for that. But if that's all we're doing, then we're not getting it. And so I agree that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, you know it well. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Look at verse 12. And there I want you to pay close attention to, to three words in that verse. The first is this one, gave. I'll read the verse. But to all who did not receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Although the world did not know him, although his homeland rejected him, and although you and I have failed to measure up, God's story does not end in tragedy, but in acceptance. To say that God gave is to speak of God's grace. It's to say that salvation is a gift from God. The word gave or give brings out the note of unmerited grace. Recall Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2.8.9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The second word is right. He gave us the right. Calvin translated this as honor. He gave us the honor of becoming children of God. The word has in mind to authorize or make legitimate our claim of becoming God's children. As you can see from our outline, I like the word privilege here. It's children's privileged response. He gave us the privilege of becoming his sons and daughters. I believe this brings out the concepts of God's gift and our entitlement together quite nicely. Gave, right, and the third word is children. As a result of God's grace, we obtain the privileged status of becoming children of God. While it's true that God is in one sense the father of all people, he made them and provides for them, our status as sons and daughters in the fullest sense is determined by how we respond to what the father has done for us in Christ. That's a really long sentence. <laughs> if we have received the word, then we are born again into God's heavenly family. It's only then that you and I can rightly be called children of God. If you and I have been gifted the privileged status of children, it's because we have, as John says here, believed in his name. We have believed in his name. Now, that, there's an uncommon idea in our day. Um, even the idea of giving names to our children that uh, this speaks to a concept or a desire that we want for them, that we wish for them, that seems, to, be, that seems ha to have passed in our day. Today we just kind of make up names. We just do whatever we want with people's names. Um, what's in a name? Well, in the ancient world it was quite different, and so the name of a person stood for their whole person, their whole personality, everything they were. Psalm 5.11 says, But let all... You, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Psalm 20, verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So the name protects us. We exult in the name. It's the whole person of Christ or God in, the, in those examples, you might say. It's speaking of all that God means. It's speaking of his entire person. 
The modern Jews understand this when they read the, the Old Testament scriptures, right? When they come across the divine name of God, Yahweh, they don't say Yahweh. Of course, they're kind of leaning into the third commandment a little bit, but they, they, they actually say, when they say out loud, they don't say Yahweh, they say the name. Because that's their understanding, is that the name means everything that that person is. So to say the name, with a capital N, is to capture everything that God is. His name. To believe in the name of the Logos means to trust the person of the Logos. It's to believe in Him as He is. It's to accept what His name proclaims to be. What is it that His name the word proclaims to be? Well, I suppose this is a question for the ages. I do have a little bit of time. John chapter 18 is, is helpful here. Maybe remember Jesus before Pilate. John 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord, or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? How fitting is it that John would record these words from Pilate in a book that records the answer to such a question on every single page? I guess that's what's in a name. Finally, we're given the origin of the children of God in verse 13. John gives us three negative statements and one positive. He says that we're not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, he says in verse 13. To say not of blood is to speak of natural descent. Here, John may be speaking of blood relations. The idea of being a child of God comes as a result of being a, comes as a result of being a descendant of Abraham or Moses. You remember the Jews appealed to their heritage for their, their place before God. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. It's not a human decision. It's not a natural decision. It's a supernatural reality. Nor of the will of man. The phrase is a little idiomatic here. If we were to tra translate this literally, it would literally say, not a husband's will. It's an idiom. Probably an allusion to a husband's role in intercourse and procreation. When you pile these statements up and you consider the context here and in the book in general, of the book in general, all this seems to address the Jewish pride of race. I think that's what John's after here. The Jews believe that because of their fathers, that is their great ancestry, God would show favor on them. And as we're, we're going to see in the coming weeks, particularly in John chapter 3, Jesus says, whoever, whoever believes in the Son will not perish, but have eternal life, as we're familiar with. Finally, John says positively, God's children are born of God. To be born again is always a miracle. 
There's no human initiative that could accomplish such things. The only way you and I, that anyone ever can be born into the heavenly family is to be born of God. And so in conclusion, make no mistake about it, we cannot make ourselves children of God. No one can enter into this kind of relationship by his own will or power. You might say there's a great chasm between the human and the divine. Therefore, we can only become children of God if God closes the gulf. A peasant never approaches a king to offer a friendship. If there is to be a relationship between the two, it depends entirely on the king's approach, not ours. So it is between us and God. You and I cannot, by will or by deed, enter into a loving relationship with the king. Men are men, and God is God. Thus, you and I can only enter into our saving relationship with God when God's unmerited, privileged favor paves a way. All this is certainly true, yet, verse 12 says, all who did receive him, who believed in his name. As a father, I may offer my children my love, my advice, my friendship, my inheritance. Man, struggling this morning. Yet those children may refuse it all and chart their own course. I suppose when you put all this together, God has given us the privilege of becoming his children. Yet, you and I need to accept that offer. Or said in another direction, when we do accept God's offer, we discover that we were in fact born of God. So both sides should be pleased. So we have seen three responses to the true light, an inspired response from John, a very natural response from the world, and a privileged response from the Christian. And so in the coming week, I want to challenge you with two questions. You can write these down. This is, this is my final application. Two questions. Reflect on the following. What do each of these responses to the true light teach me about God's plan of redemption? Again, what do each of these responses to the true light teach me about God's plan of redemption? What does John's inspired response say? What does uh, the world's ordinary or natural response say about the true light and about God's plan of redemption? And what does his children's privileged response say about the true light and God's plan of redemption? And finally, this question, what actions can I take this week that will demonstrate my privileged response to the light? What actions can I take this week that will demonstrate my privileged response to the light? All God's people said amen.